Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. The title of today's message is Daniel's Second Vision. It's not very creative, I know, but it is accurate. Uh, Last week we saw Daniel's first vision. Remember up until that point, Daniel had been interpreter of dreams. Now he's beginning to receive the visions directly and the Lord is giving him the interpretation through angels. And so uh, we come today to this eighth chapter. Here in the second half of the book, we are privileged to the details of a series of apocalyptical visions given to Daniel. He and the Jewish people, remember, are in captivity up in Babylon. And last week we saw the vision of the four beasts which emerged from the great sea, which was of course in turmoil. This was symbolic of the human condition, how one empire would follow upon the next. And of course these are the same four empires that are mentioned in chapter 2 that Daniel interpreted the vision of King Nebuchadnezzar. Those empires, remember, were in chronological order, Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, Greece, and Rome. Now in Daniel's vision, the first three empires were were comparable to animals. The first, Babylon, had the appearance of a lion with wings, and the second, a bear, and the third, a leopard with four heads and and four wings. But the fourth beast, you remember, looked nothing like anyone had ever seen before. It was a monster. It had iron teeth and bronze claws. It trampled and destroyed everything in its path. This is clearly the Roman Empire with its massive army and great worldwide strength. But the portion of the vision that seemed to cause Daniel the most concern was what was referred to last Sunday as the boastful horn. Remember that in the middle of the ten horns of this great monstrous beast Rome came a little horn that displaced three of the ten. And it was unlike the other horns in that it had a human appearance. It had eyes and a mouth. And with that mouth it boasted of its exploits. This horn also waged war with the saints, the scripture says, and it it looked for the world like he would defeat them. They were being overwhelmed until, Daniel says, the ancient of days, which is God the Father, intervened, sided with the saints, pronounced judgment upon the boastful horn, and that horn was ultimately defeated just as all of the others that came before it. We believe, as we said last week, that this boastful horn is the Antichrist. This means that there's only one world empire left in the future from our perspective before Christ comes and receives his eternal kingdom. And this is exciting stuff if you are a Christian. Well, I said that this is uh, apocalyptical literature. And the Bible has two great apocalyptical books, one in the Old Testament, Daniel, one in the New Testament, Revelation. But it is a type of uh, literary genre that follows a pattern. That is, In apocalyptical literature, the same truths, same facts are covered from multiple um, ways and and multiple directions to give the fullest picture. If you want to think of it in terms of mechanics, it, it would most closely be compared to a screw. A screw has a set point at its terminus and it is rotated upon that point And with every revolution, the screw sinks deeper and deeper. So here in chapter 8 of Daniel, 
we receive a deeper and a clearer picture of world historic events as Daniel has this second vision, this one coming two years after the first. Now you remember that the apostle John said that many antichrists would come before the final one. And I believe that here in Daniel 8, we see proof positive of that truth. So the first thing we see here, verses one through four, is the uneven ram. It says, in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. I looked in the vision and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. Then I lifted my eyes and looked and behold a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other with the longer one coming up last. And I saw the ram budding westward, northward and southward and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue him from his power. And he did as he pleased and magnified himself. You remember that at this point in which Daniel receives this vision, the Babylonians are still in power. It is the third year of the reign of Belshazzar. This is the same Belshazzar that in just a few years would see that vision of the handwriting on the wall. And at that point, the Medo-Persians swept in and took over the empire. But, but at this point, that event is still years in the future. And so the setting of Daniel's vision, he says very specifically, is at the citadel of Susa, which is um, another name for the city of Shushan. And uh, this is uh, a place that was of great importance to the Babylonians. And he describes it as being beside the Ulai Canal. Now, for many years, archaeologists couldn't pinpoint that. Um, and it was a word for a river that was very unusual and different. And really it wasn't like a, a natural river. And archeologists in recent years have discovered this Ulai Canal, which was 900 feet across, which was actually a man-made channel for the distribution of merchandise. And, and so let me ask you this, does this sound like a tall tale to you? Remember that's what the critics said of Daniel. This is just folk legend. But when you're making up a folk legend, you make up places and events. But here Daniel is giving specific locations, individuals that are known to history, places that are known to history that could be verified or, or denied. And so let me just remind us all that the Bible is true and trustworthy, isn't it? Now, here's the image that he saw in his vision. He saw a ram, which is, of course, a male sheep had two horns as rams do. Uh, one of the horns was longer than the other. Now, when I pictured this vision, I was reminded a few years ago, I went up to Oregon to visit Scott and Judy Knox, who are our church planters there. And by the way, this I believe is Scott and Judy's last Sunday there at their church. And they've uh, called a new pastor and Scott is gonna go on and, and plant another church. And we're grateful for them. But Scott took me to um, a bighorn sheep preserve just outside of Baker City, Oregon, where they live. And we, with binoculars, watch these bighorn sheep come upon these cliffs and butt each other with their horns. And this is the picture you have of this ram with one horn which was stronger than the other. And of course, this is uh, reminding us of chapter seven. You remember in that vision, the Medo-Persian Empire is pictured as a bear with one arm longer than the other. That is one side is stronger than the other. And so the, the word Medo-Persian speaks of those two great empires that were merged 
right? The Medes and the Persians. And the Persian Empire ultimately was the stronger of, of the two. And so again, we think this is just another retelling of those same empires from a different perspective. And so hold on to that because the ram was powerful and it charged in three directions. Nothing could resist it and it became great. You remember that the four beasts of chapter seven were empires. And, and again, here's the retelling. This is the Medo-Persian. Now, the second thing we see beginning verse five is a challenger to this ram, and that is uh, what I'm calling an aggressive goat. Verse five, while I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. He came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. And I saw him come beside the ram and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and shattered his two horns and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. And then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And in its place, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. So here's this aggressive goat. It, it had one prominent horn between his eyes and we might be tempted to call it a unicorn. I guess you could say it was, but it wasn't spreading rainbows and hugs. This goat was mean and it was aggressive and incredibly swift. It was so fast that its feet appeared not to even touch the ground when it moved. And it came upon the ram and immediately challenged it and utterly destroyed it. In fact, the scripture says it shattered its horns, knocked it to the ground, and I take it killed the ram. Now you remember again, this goat is another empire. And if we go back to chapter seven, the empire that followed the bear was the leopard with four wings and four heads. And here is some more imagery that gives a little more detail. It was swift. It uh, was followed by uh, four more horns are divided into to four kingdoms. Remember that the horns in the Bible almost always symbolize power and authority. And so for that ram to have its horns shattered meant that its sovereignty and its authority and its power were ultimately devastated. And of course, this has to be the empire of Greece, which moves so rapidly under the leadership of Alexander the Great and that in a matter of just a few years swept all the way to India and dominated the entire Mediterranean world. And I mentioned briefly in verse eight, uh, this large horn, let's look at it again, verse eight, then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken and in its place came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came a rather small horn which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the beautiful land. So remember, it has one large horn in the middle of its forehead between its eyes, and at the height of its strength and power, that horn gets broken off. Remember, the horn is a symbol of authority. The point of the spear, in other words, was broken off. And I take this to be an individual who died, and that individual I believe to be Alexander the Great. You've studied Alexander the Great more than likely in Western civilization. Uh, Alexander the Great was born on July 21st, 356 BC to his father, Philip of Macedon, who was a king and his mother was Olympia. 
And if, if there was anyone that was ever destined for greatness, it was Alexander the Great. He was trained by the best tutors, trained by the best military minds. In fact, his personal tutor was a man you've heard of by the name of Aristotle. And so for three years, the philosopher Aristotle trained the teenage boy. And by the time he was 18 years old, Alexander was leading large segments of his father Philip's army. And he was known as a military genius. He was known for his aggressiveness and for the speed in which he defeated his enemies. And so he is that horn. And at the age of 32 years and 11 months, he died on June 11, 323 BC, many believe of alcohol poisoning. He lived a very um, profligate life and died at a very young age. And when he died, before he did, he was asked the question, which one of your generals should take your place? And he is uh, purported to have said the strongest one. He, he was someone who loved a fight and he knew that uh, his four generals would ultimately fight it out for control of his vast empire. And so that leads us fourthly to the small horn. Verse nine, but out of one of them came forth. Remember these four horns took the place of the one horn. Of course, that's exactly what happened when Alexander died, as we'll see. Um, four of his generals divided up his territory. But then this one horn, this small horn, grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the beautiful land. And of course, to Daniel, the beautiful land was uh, Israel. To me, it's Mississippi. But to uh, Daniel, it was Israel. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host and it removed the regular sacrifice from him. And the place of the sanctuary was thrown down. Now on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. And I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? And he said to me for 2300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. Now here is the real focus of the vision. Just as in the first vision, Daniel's focus was on the meaning of the boastful horn. That's what caught his attention. Now in the second vision, this little horn catches his attention. This horn caught Daniel's eye because, hear this, of its relationship to Israel. Remember it said it was pointed towards the beautiful land, that it has had some sort of interaction with Daniel's homeland, Israel. Now you remember uh, that, that uh, after 70 years in, in Babylon, Daniel had not become Babylonian at heart. From his teenage years, he refused to eat at the king's table and worship the king's gods. He opened his windows and prayed three times a day facing Jerusalem. And every day, I take it, he grieved over the fact that he and his people were, were separated from the holy land which God had granted their ancestors. And he prayed every day for their return. But this horn, this powerful figure yet to come in the future is said to wage war against God's people. Now this is not the boastful horn of the previous chapter. This is a different horn. 
But the thing that he does that breaks Daniel's heart as he sees the future is that he stops the daily sacrifices. You remember that in the temple they had sacrifices not only on the day of atonement, but every day, twice a day, they had morning sacrifices and evening sacrifices. And so the question is asked, I take it of these two angels that are speaking to Daniel, how long will this cessation of the sacrificial system be stopped? And he said, for 2,300 mornings and evenings. And not only that, this man is going to set himself up and rule over Jerusalem and Israel and declare himself the commander of the army. Well, this would be difficult to interpret except for the fact, as we saw last week, uh, it's interpreted for us, thankfully. And uh, we see that interpretation beginning in verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. By the way, that's good advice for all of us when we read the Bible. Don't just read it to mark off. I did my Bible reading that day. We ought to read for understanding and we ought to read until we understand it. And so he said, I, after I'd seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Uli. And he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to me and I was standing. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the times of the end. Now, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground and he touched me and made me stand upright. And he said, behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. And the ram, which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. And the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. And the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. And in the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. He will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. He will magnify himself in his heart. He will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes. He will be broken without human agency. The vision of the evenings and mornings, which has been told is true. But keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. And so Daniel is confronted with a messenger by the way, that's what the word angel means literally. In the Greek, angelos means messenger. And in the Bible, we have two messengers of the Lord who are named. And they are Michael and this particular angel that is named here, Gabriel. And they always come with important news. And so here is the message. Verse 20 tells us, the ram which you saw, the two horns represents the kings of, of Media. Uh, and Persia. And I suspect maybe Daniel had already worked that out given the fact that he'd had previous visions before. It's just confirmed and affirmed in his mind. And then the aggressive goat is defined as Greece. Now you have to understand these events, these visions take place hundreds of years before the actual events occur. 
And so these kingdoms have not even risen to power yet. And here's Daniel receiving them with their names. And then this prominent horn is described as the king, Alexander the Great, we know from hindsight, who conquered the world with great speed and died at 32 years. And when that first king dies, his kingdom is divided into four. And those generals by name are Ptolemy, Lysimachus, Cassander, and Seleucus. And so um, these guys couldn't even bury their boss before they started fighting over control of his empire. Uh, in fact, um, one of them, Ptolemy, stole the corpse of Alexander the Great and ran off with it because there was a legend that wherever Alexander was buried, that empire would become the greatest. And he wanted to fulfill, fulfill that prophecy. Um, Cassander was so lustful for power that he went directly back to where um, Alexander's family lived and murdered his entire family, lest one of them would claim that they were the rightful heir to the throne. So these descendants would go on to fight one another for a couple of hundred more years. <clears throat> but out of the Seleucid Empire, that's the one that we're most interested in, emerged what Daniel describes here as this small horn. So this is an individual. Just as the, the prominent large horn in the middle of the forehead of the goat was an individual, Alexander the Great, this small horn, which emerges among the four, is Antiochus Epiphanes. This is the man who ultimately ruled the Seleucid Empire. And by the way, he gave himself the name Antiochus Epiphanes, which means God manifest. He had a pretty high view of himself. He says, I'm God in the flesh. And unlike his peers in the other kingdoms, he claimed for himself deity. And he lived from 215 BC to 164 BC. And his constituents behind his back did not call him Antiochus Epiphanes. They called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means the mad one. And he was. He focused his wrath most acutely on the nation of Israel. In fact, he had been fighting the, the Ptolemies down in Egypt, trying to take over that empire, when rumor came back to Israel that he had been killed in battle. Well, unfortunately, uh, the, the, the uh, reports of his death were, were overstated. He wasn't dead at all. In fact, when he came back and found out that they had uh, rebelled in his absence, he came down with an iron fist. He returned from Egypt and put down the rebellion harshly. Thousands upon thousands were murderously killed. The, the temple of the living God was desecrated. The statue of Zeus was set up in the temple and the people were forced to make sacrifices to it. And, and you can read about this in secular history. This is what we call the period of the Maccabees. And if you have Jewish friends who celebrate Hanukkah, Hanukkah is the holiday that emerged from this era of history. But one of the, the most appalling things that Antiochus Epiphanes did was that he forbade the offering of sacrifices to Jehovah God. And remember, we've said here that we are to obey the government authorities until they forbid us from doing what God commands. And so there was a rebellion. And every time there was a, a rebellion, Many, many thousands lost their lives. Now, remember, 
the sacrifices aren't going on during Daniel's day. Remember that Nebuchadnezzar had shut that down and he hauled off all of the, the nobility and, and the best and brightest off to Babylon. And so for 70 years, they're in this Babylonian captivity. Now, if you read the book of Nehemiah, you know that uh, ultimately after the Babylonians go off the scene, that uh, Nehemiah is allowed to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall and reestablish the temple worship and the sacrificial system there. But that's all in the future. So apparently Daniel understands that it's going to be restored, but that it's going to be stopped again. So, so again, he knows he'll be long dead before any of this ever happens. But let's look at his response. Verse 27 but then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. And then I got up again and carried on the king's business. But I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. Daniel was appalled. Th these were his people. E even though he would never meet any of them personally, he would be long dead before these events came to pass. He still identified very closely with the people of Israel. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I think about the world that my children and grandchildren and potentially great-grandchildren could inherit, I'm appalled, aren't you? And when I think about the world that they're going to face, it, it grieves me. And I think that's the experience Daniel had. It grieved him to the point where he said he was exhausted and sick for days. He couldn't eat and lift up his head. But then he says, I got up again and carried on the king's business. Sometimes when we um, are so immersed in the bad news that's happening out there in the world, it, it can stop us from doing what we know is necessary. And I think there's, there's a time for everything. Book of Ecclesiastes says there's a time to cry. And Daniel spent that time of grief and mourning as he thought about this tragedy that was going to come upon his descendants. But then he also knew that there's also a time to do the king's business. And for Christians, it's not sinful, I don't think, to, to grieve over what's been lost. It's not sinful to, to grieve over the future that our children will face. But we have work to do. And it's the king's business, isn't it? But it's not Antiochus Epiphanes, and it's not the Alexander the Great. It's not even Nebuchadnezzar who are, is our king. Our king is King Jesus, and we are ambassadors for Christ. And he has given us a crystal clear assignment in Matthew 28, which is to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded. So in conclusion, I, I want to point out four or five things that I think that, that are a takeaway from Daniel chapter eight. And, and the first one is so obvious it hardly needs to be stated. And that is this, our God has always been right in the past, hasn't he? All of human history is advancing towards a culminating event, which he has already placed on the calendar, which is the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, not even Daniel, as great a man and prophet as he was, understood that fully. 
You remember, we, we talk about the two comings, the two advents of Christ uh, as two mountains lined up one behind the other. And the Old Testament prophets, when they looked at the future, they, they only saw one mountain. They saw that first coming of Christ and they didn't call it the first coming because they didn't know about the second one. But on the other side of that mountain is his second coming when he comes to rule and reign forever. And in between those two mountains, we now know is the, this valley we call the age of grace. Jesus came the first time he said, um, not to judge, but to bring salvation. And when he comes the second time, remember he came the first time riding the foal of a donkey, that symbol of peace. But when he comes again, what's he going to be riding? A white charger, a, a war horse. And he was the suffering servant, meek and humble of heart when he came the first time. But when he comes again, he's going to be king of kings and Lord of lords, and he's coming to judge. And so we live, don't we, in that valley, that age of grace between his ascension into heaven and to his ultimate second coming. And it's called the age of grace because during this period, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And our task, our commission as the church of the living God is to go and make that news known, to proclaim it far and wide. And so I am encouraged to know that in the past, God's prophecies have always come true, which means he is right also about future events, isn't he? He says, here's what's going to happen, Daniel, even to the names of the kingdoms. And as we look back in our history books, it happened exactly the way he said it would. And so since God has been trustworthy in the past, he's never lied before. We can be encouraged and have faith that these future events will happen in his timing and the way that he has decreed. Now, the next thing we see is the <clears throat> affirmation and the confirmation of what we started with that the Apostle John said that before that time of when Christ returns, there will be many antichrists, many kingdoms and rulers and authorities who will set themselves up against Christ and his church. And so, you know, as Peter wrote, don't think something strange has happened when these persecutions come. It's exactly as Jesus predicted. I think when Peter wrote that, he had in mind something the Lord Jesus said to he and the other disciples, and that is, a servant is not better than his master. Jesus' life was not an unbroken chain of wonderful, happy moments. Jesus' life was marked, and, and indeed, um, is known for his suffering. We call that his, his uh, suffering. And, and of course, the, the Lord Jesus' passion is all of those things that, that led up to the cross. So um, we can expect that. Don't, don't think something strange when the church starts to be persecuted. It's been going on for 2,000 years. And I take it that the intensity and the frequency of those persecution is going to grow stronger and closer together the closer we get to the coming of Christ. But, but here is the most important takeaway of all. Even though many antichrists, many will set themselves up against Christ and his church until that day, ultimately God will defeat them all. This is the message of these two visions, remember? So um, the first raises itself up, looks like a lion. Babylonians, they come and go. 
the bear sets himself up, three ribs in his mouth, strong, fierce. The Medo-Persians, they come and go. The leopard with the four heads and the four wings come and go. And ultimately, even this monster, Rome with the ten horns, passes from human history. We saw it in chapter 2 with the statue, the head of gold, the shoulders and arms of silver, the, the, the midsection of bronze and legs of iron. They will come and go. And even that ultimate final empire led by the Antichrist, signified by the feet with a mixture of iron and clay, will ultimately be smashed to pieces by that rock which was hewn out of the mountain without human hands, which is the Lord Jesus. And so fear not when you read on the news about this nation being a threat and this one emerging and all these things, they all have one thing in common. Ultimately, God will defeat them all. And I think when we put all those things together, that God has always been right in the past, He'll always be right in the future. There are many antichrists and God will defeat them all. It makes us long for heaven and home, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but, but the events of the last six months have had an impact on my thinking. And, and if, if I was holding on to any vestige of investment in this life, most of that, I won't say all of it, I still struggle like you do, has been squeezed out of me like a sponge. And I realize that this world is not what I need to be investing in. I need to be laying up treasure in heaven where Jesus is, seated at the right hand of the Father. Because again, as Peter prophesied, one day this world is going to melt away with fervent heat. All of these things are going to be relegated to the scrap heap of history and then poof, they're all going to be gone. And all that will remain will be Christ and those who bow their knee to Him. And what about you, friend? What are you living for? Are you living for the moment? Are you living for the time where the, the economy turns around and you can start making money again? Or are you living for this brief time of health, these few years where we can move around unencumbered, or, or are you investing in eternity? Are you, are you putting all of your chips, so to speak, in eternity? That is, are you recognizing that while we're here in this world, we have a mission? That is to take the gospel to all the nations, but one day very soon, all this is going to be done away with. And Christ will set up his eternal kingdom to rule and reign forever. I pray that you would disabuse yourself of any notion that this world holds anything for you as a believer. And that you will place all your hope, all your security, all your future in Jesus Christ and bow your knee to his lordship. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this word. And we have to admit, Lord, that these visions, this way of talking and thinking is, is very foreign to us. Images and metaphors and heavenly proclamations. 
And yet, Lord, this is how you and your sovereignty have chosen to communicate your plan for the future. I'm reminded of what Jesus said when he was asked by his disciples why he always spoke in parables. And the reason was he was hiding these things from unbelievers and he was revealing them to his own. So, Father, I thank you that by your spirit you have revealed this truth here today that Jesus Christ will ultimately rule and reign. And even though many antichrists will come and go, men like Alexander the Great and Antiochus Epiphanes, Father, that they're barely remembered in history because you ultimately designated the time of their existence. You are sovereign and they are not. And Lord, if that's true in the past, it's true in the future. It's true in the present that things that overwhelm us now will soon be forgotten. And so it's uh, incumbent upon us. It behooves us, Father, to keep our eyes on heaven where Jesus is, seated at the right hand of the Father. Help us not to be overwhelmed or overcome by the world because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We thank you for that truth. We rest on it. It gives us peace. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.